0: Student debt is a massive problem in the United States, as college costs continue to rise, and many of the emerging career opportunities are out of reach to people who have no degree. That's why Grant Aldrich's new learning program, OnlineDegree.com, lets people take many undergraduate college courses for free, online, on their own schedule, with credits that are recognized at over a thousand accredited universities. In this episode of Hack the Process, Grant will tell us why he felt it was important to make all of the courses and materials free for students from day one, how he validated the concept and built an audience with practically no marketing, and what personal drivers motivated him to leverage his 15 years of startup experience to make college credits more accessible and affordable. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Today, I'm speaking with Grant Aldrich, and he's the founder of OnlineDegree.com. Grant, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Great. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. So, I took a look at OnlineDegree.com, and it seems to be a place where people can go and get college credit courses for free. That's it. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, really, the gist. Well, that's it. It was a great interview. Thank you very much.
1: thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's fascinating because college is one of those huge expenses. People rack up hundreds of thousands of dollars getting their degrees and getting a class online for free that actually applies toward your college degree. I can imagine that has a huge impact on that sort of thing.
1: It does. And what most people don't know is that there's roughly 35 to 40 million working adults who want to go back to school. The demand is there to upskill, but they're not taking that first step back to college. And you know I think we can all appreciate why that is. It's the cost-benefit ratio with how expensive college has become and how sometimes how inaccessible it is has become so much so that people just aren't going back. And I looked at that as a real problem. And so really the whole genesis of OnlineDegree.com was meant to alleviate what those known impediments are. OnlineDegree.com is actually a place
0: where you can take college-level credits for free.
1: Exactly. So really what it is is that it's, it's, a, it's more like a modern alternative to the community college, where you can get started in 60 seconds, create your account, no entrance exams, no interviews, and immediately take as many college-level courses as you'd like. And we've organized articulations across the country with universities so you can receive credit for those courses. We've also organized many tuition discounts so that you can even
0: lower the cost of your education even further, and we do it all for free. It sounds remarkable and it begs a lot of questions about how the business runs, what the business model is around those sorts of things. But the first thing I'm curious about is what gave you the idea to get started on something like this in the first place?
1: Yeah, that's actually a little bit of a longer story, but essentially I had just exited a couple of startup. I've been, let me preface that I've been startups for my whole career. And I had seen an exit on my last one, and I was really reflecting on what I wanted to do at this point in my life. I wasn't in education before this, but I went through a very reflective period, and I decided that I wanted to do something that had a very big impact. And I I didn't really know what that was going to be, but I, I, I just kept gravitating back towards education because my family, I grew up in a family of all educators, and I had also left college with just a ton of debt. And so I think those two things had combined and just continue went there, but it didn't really it didn't really crystallize until there was a conversation with my wife. Because I started telling her about the data, about how so many millions of adults are not going back to school despite these huge macro trends like automation, globalization, all of these huge things that people need to go back and upscale, but they're not taking that step. And she said you know, she was pregnant with our, our son at the time and she was talking and she was kind of lamenting about the situation for stay at home mom and she said, You know, for for stay at home moms, they're really in an impossible situation because they, they can't afford to go back to school. They're they're implicitly in charge of lowering the house expenses. They don't have time, they can't leave to go to a classroom, they can't stay in a certain classroom for hours at a time. It doesn't fit their schedule. What are they supposed to do? I said, You know what? That's genius. You nailed it. Because that doesn't just apply to stay-at-home moms. That applies to every working adult who's got a job, kids, right? These these same impediments. And so that was really the genesis where we started just with a mission statement. How do we make college more affordable and accessible? And then it really grew from there.
0: I can see where the genesis came from your own personal needs. And you saw that you had your family, people were in a situation where you could really feel that that was something that was going to affect you. And with your own personal debt, that was something that you could feel, you could feel the effect as well. But the idea of creating something like this, I can see making it accessible, but also making it free. Those feel like two different trajectories for the same idea.
1: Yeah. So I'll explain that as well. So when I looked at and really dug into what were the problems that stopped a working adult from going back to school. If you think about it, it is a really scary thing that you need to make this huge leap into the pool with, in terms of, you know, first a psychological impediment, right? Am I going to be successful if I go back to school? I haven't been back in a classroom for 20 years, and let alone probably not online. Can I do it? Do I have the time management to be successful? So the first step was overcoming those. And the next step was overcoming the financial aspects. Because again, in that big giant leap, I have to get started right away. I have to make this big outlay of cash. So instead, I said, it has to be free. So we have to remove the tuition aspect to to scale the platform and remove that impediment so people can wade into the pool. They can say, okay, I'm going to try this out. See if I like learning again. See if I can be successful. Get that itch, that learning itch and then progress through. So in the business model, I knew that it had to be free and I didn't know how we were gonna do it at first, And uh, but I knew it had to be there. So what eventually we worked out was that, so it's free for students and it's actually paid for by participating universities through sponsorships and advertising because what may not become, so it's probably intuitive, the value that a student gets, but the universities get an immense value as well because for a university, it's very challenging to find good students who are motivated to stay in school, finish their program, who are familiar with a modern learning management system. You know, all of these things that make them better students when they arrive. So they're incredibly eager to reach the students who are on our platform because it's inherently self vetting and allows them to prove so
0: much before they get to the university itself. Interesting. Interesting. And I can see there'd be a number of technical challenges that you'd need to overcome in developing something like this. Not not only finding how to reach the universities, also finding how to reach the students, but then also assembling these courses in the first place. Did you have a background in any of these things when you started? So no. Good <laughs> <laughs> place to start. Short answer, <laughs> no. Because
1: uh, you're right. It was, you know, in hindsight, I don't I didn't truly appreciate what a massive undertaking this would truly become, which is why, which I think maybe all good entrepreneurs need to have, right? That just that just just the optimism without the, the dose of reality. <laughs> and because right, when I started getting into it, you realize how much goes into creating these courses and which is also partly why it took about two years for us to get off the ground and formally launch. Which for most of the tech world, you know, creating minimum viable products in a fast scrum environment would make them faint. It was really a leap of faith. So we had to utilize... And So if if you are going to be free and you are going to do something that reaches so many people on this kind of a basis, you really are starting from scratch. And you have to figure out a way to cut your costs dramatically and put the courses in a mold that fit this new dynamic, right? 24 seven, non-sequential self-serve kind of courses. We utilized a lot of OER material, which is open source in education. So I'm a big fan of the open source movement, whether in software or or in education. And then we also created, we had an amazing academic advisory board and college professors who helped us then create a lot of our own content as part of that. It's actually one of the unsung stories of of getting it all off the ground, just on the course side. And then also from a technical perspective, because one of the things too that is most people would definitely will not know is that when you go to a school and you log in the the software that the school uses to deliver the courses is called a learning management system or an LMS. And there's lots of software providers that provide these systems, but ultimately because they're built for a higher education or a, a college, they're very complex and they're complicated. They have a lot of features that we wouldn't need. And the whole goal here was to make it easy to use and intuitive for someone with no additional support to figure out how to use it. So we had to really make it simplified in the user experience. And I think we did it. It was it was a lot of work to build it out, but I think that was achieved as well. So you didn't even start with off-the-shelf software. You built this from the, from the ground up yourself. Well, no, we started with a kind of a backbone of an open source platform, but then we had to heavily customize it. Because again, none of it was really made for the application that we wanted. And the skin, you know, so that, you know, that goes from the skin, the functionality, we really had to, to, to build on top of what was already out there.
0: Now oh, that makes sense. So which open source platform did you start with?
1: Learn Dash. Learn
0: Dash. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to give them credit, you know, the, yeah, the unsung yeah. story. We're going to sing that story right now. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of unsung stories, so you mentioned that you had an advisory board. and That's not something that springs up out of nothing. How did you put together an advisory board for this? That's also something that wasn't easy because I didn't
1: have a network in academia. You know, I'll I'll, kind of answer this question and something that I can attribute almost all of our success to in our penetration so far has been people in academia are very sympathetic to what we're doing and are very supportive of what we're doing. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the people in academia believe that college should be more accessible should be more affordable, and that there's currently a problem. So when I reach out to people, and I most I, because I don't know people in the space, you know, I, for the first time I'm coming from the outside, I would just write someone an email. But when I would talk about the mission, people liked it, and I think that they they want to see something like this work overall because I mean they look at us as we're really trying to save higher ed. We're not competing with it, and like a lot of other alternatives out there. So when I started reaching out and trying to find advisory board members, it actually came relatively easy because people just have gravitated towards the mission. That's interesting. So how did the advisory board come together? Yeah. So I started reaching out and it's kind of one of those things where you reach out to one person and they help you reach out to a second and then you know the the the, the cycle continues. So I found a couple individuals who were, I could tell based on some of their accolades and accomplishments were very OER and friendly to this non-traditional learning. And I reached out to them. I think it was either via LinkedIn or via email. And once they came on board, again, it would kind of spread, hey, oh, I know this individual as well. And we really built it organically.
0: That's wonderful. And so it was email reaching out originally. Did you do any face-to-face communication with these folks or did you do it all online? All online.
1: Yeah. I'm based in the southwest between Nevada and the LA area. And so, you know, the likelihood that we would have someone nearby is low. And I knew that I could cover more ground digitally. And uh, the organization's completely virtual. So, no, I would say 99% of everything we've done is all digital and virtual.
0: That's interesting. And you mentioned that you'd spent, I think you said, 15 years working in startups before this. So, I'm wondering if the skills that you developed in the startups were something that you could leverage in the process of building this.
1: Sure, my tolerance for pain. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Been there, <laughs> yeah.
1: I think I think when you when you when you're in startups that long, you're just you're just ready for that that kind of adversity. You're prepared for the roller coaster ride, the highs and the lows. Yeah, very much a lot. I think that after my experience with my, the prior startups, there was a lot that I brought to bear. The first being that I wanted to make sure that this system was as automated as possible. So a lot of investment was ta- was put in early in the inception of building the platform to allow it to be as low maintenance as possible so that it could scale to potentially hundreds of thousands of students and not need a relatively, or a relative increase of personnel to support it. So that was the first thing where, you know, in my prior life, a lot of times when you build things, you do build things in a, I don't know, you you try to get an MVP out and you're building it in such a way that you wanna prove it with the hopes that you're gonna build upon it once you see some success. But what typically happens is, you never get around to fixing it. You just always keep what was the initial part you built and you never get make the time to go back around because you're then working on the next project. So that I was not going to accept. And part of that is because I realized that, again, we have to keep costs down to make this come to fruition. And if we have a huge organization with a lot of uh, bloat, it, it would never survive.
0: And that makes sense. You do need to start a small What's the advice? Stay as small as you can for as long as you can when you're building your new business.
1: Yeah, that's that's good advice. Whoever whoever came up with that was a genius.
0: Yeah, and of course you you waited until you had something that was more well established before you even launched. Correct, and a lot of that is just the
1: specific nature of this
0: business idea in
1: general. So, for example, there's a lot of complexity that goes into launching something like this. So, and to give it the proper ability to test it like an MVP normally would. I'll give you an example. So let's say you get through and you launch all these courses and you go through that whole process to do it. Again, you need the learning management system to deliver it and to make that experience seamless as well because part of this in the success is not just having the courses, but again, that someone could come on and on their own initiative and at their own pacing, progress all the way through. And then in addition to that, you have to be able to make sure that the universities are going to accept the courses and be willing to articulate with you to meet, you know, a collegiate standard. So you have to be, you have to go to these third-party resources and work with them to, in a very, very strenuous process where you, where that you have peer reviews and, and professors reviewing your courses, making sure they're up to the collegiate level. It's a very intense process. So you can imagine going through all of that, is really necessary to give yourself the honest take if you ha- for your MVP, and yet is an immense amount of work to get there.
0: It's true. And you can't really prove anything until you've started getting students through the program and seeing what they do.
1: Exactly. You can't really say, because part of an MVP would be the marketing aspect. Well, how can I market to a student and tell them that the courses could receive credit if we haven't hit all of the, the standards that it would in working with universities in the first place? So it was, it, it was a very challenging model.
0: And, and I can imagine also that you, you must have raised some eyebrows when you approached these accrediting boards or whoever verified the effectiveness of your courses and told them what you were trying to do. This, this must not have been something they'd seen before.
1: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of them had seen because th- we're designated as something called a non-collegiate provider, right? So a, a group that is not a college, but that provides coursework that is comparable to college level and that the colleges accept for credit. So that part of what we're doing isn't new. There's a lot of organizations that have done things like that. But in terms of the making it free and the way that we've packaged it and the platform, that's all new. And so you're right. And so they're like, wow. And so we always get a lot of intrigue
0: about how we're doing what we do. And making it free, again, getting back to that, I believe your background is in economics. So I'm curious, you you saw the value of that from a social perspective in terms of the why it would attract the right kind of students and why it would have the social impact that you were hoping to have. But I imagine that was challenging when you were trying to approach investors. Oh, yeah, very much so. Because you're right, that
1: investors in education, they understand the tuition model. They get that, right? That's a well-tread, you know, how many thousands of years, that model, they get. But when you're trying to move a new model, there's always a bit of uncertainty in the sense that, okay, well, is your model going to work, right? So even if you prove that, okay, you can attract students, you can attract university partners, can you make it financially work? And, you know, that I think is going to be the challenge with anybody that moves into it, you know, a, a variation of a unconventional business model. So yeah, it was very challenging. Although we were lucky, the people who did believe in us, you know, we we have a seed round, had some really great angel investors who got us off the ground. And I think we've proven,
0: we've proven it works. And you like the trajectory you're seeing right now.
1: Very much. I think that now after, we're a little over a year since our launch, we launched in July, that things have really dramatically improved. And in the sense that we've proven out so much of the concept. So we've proven out the fact that, you know, students really gravitate towards the platform. We get thousands of students registering every single month with almost no marketing universities have adopted this as well and so back to my earlier point about the personnel and the people within these organizations being very supportive of our mission we've seen some excellent universities who've come on board and then finally the fact that you know we're seeing really great outcomes through the whole process and in the, in the inner, inner workings of moving through the courses oh and I guess one other thing I say is we've been we've gotten really good press as well so we've got a great Forbes article inside higher ed so it's it's all starting to coalesce. I think we're really at that tipping point.
0: That's really nice. And you you mentioned you've gotten some good press, you've gotten some good visibility. That's not something that comes automatically or for free. I'm curious how you're reaching out to people, how you're letting people know about you.
1: Yeah, that's a very very challenging thing because you're right. I think for every entrepreneur, you're always faced with the dilemma of how you get the word out there and you've got limited resources, right? You don't have a marketing budget like Coca-Cola. So my strategy with this was twofold. For the student, it was really a word of mouth and a buzz strategy where I knew that when people start to realize what we're doing, word will spread. And for the universities, it was also a very similar approach where we would really focus on, except for the one twist being that we would really focus on promoting the partnerships that we already had in place. Because in any kind of business, it's always, you know, oh, what's our what are our competitors doing? And whether a university would admit this or not, University down the street is a competitor, and so when they see that all of these institutions are, you know, adopting this new program, it piques interest, and so that's really been it. But it's it's been a guerrilla campaign for sure. You know, no marketing budgets. Um, it uh, just a, really like a lot of grit. I have to admit
0: that's a very challenging way to go about it. Then, so word of mouth. I mean, you've had the opportunity then to have people go through the program or through some of the programs, and then share with them with other people that what their experiences have been. What have you seen coming out
1: of that? Well, some, a lot of great outcomes. I mean, the outpouring of support and the letters that we receive of students who've saved or saved a substantial amount of money going back to school, or that our platform gave them the ability to take the first step to do it has been extraordinary. And it's one of the benefits that I really enjoy. I I read every bit of mail, whether, you know, either if it's fan mail or if it's, um, you know, requests for changes or things that maybe aren't working as well as they should. I read every single one. I think that's important too, to keep a good finger on the pulse of the problems in the organization, what you're doing well, whatnot, as time consuming as it is. So that has been amazing. We really have already started to make an impact with the students. And then to share that, you know, kind of back to your question about the the marketing, I kind of take the approach that you should just send an email to people. And so I have never been afraid of sharing the story. In fact, for a lot of the news articles we have, that's really what it was. I, I saw some of the success. I found that there was necessarily, a, for example, a reporter at it. and I asked him, I said, Hey, here's what we're seeing. We'd love to tell you more about it if you're interested. And that's it. You know, not, not a big sales pitch, but just being honest and just being willing to reach out. And of course I get a lot of no's or people who just ignore you, but that's just going to happen anyway, but you're never going to know if they're going to write about you unless you take that leap.
0: Again, I think the confidence to move forward with all of those no's and just continue pushing out the message as you do—some of that must come from those 15 years of pain from working in startups. (laughs) Yeah, it's like it's like you
1: read my diary. (laughs) I guess with anything in life, you're going to get way more no's than you ever get yeses, and you just have to be able to shrug that off.
0: Yeah, and it's it's good when you get to the place where you feel that you're you're confident in what you're doing, and you have you have such a solid story to tell that you don't mind those no's because you know you're going to get to another yes.
1: That's it, and you know part of it too is that I think that, as i've gotten older, I realize that you know most people when they think of they they get discouraged if they reach out to someone don 't hear back they think that it's it 's completely it's a complete indication of maybe their own failing or something that they 've done wrong or that the person doesn 't like them, but in reality, I think we all appreciate that most people are busy and in in most respects. It could just be that they're not ready to pay attention right now, or they're you know busy with whatever their lives are. So when you remove yourself from a very self-centered viewpoint of people saying yes to you all the time, and you look at the fact that you know I'm just trying, hopefully I'm I'm aligning with someone else's life at one point in their interests. Great, it changes the dynamic
0: a little bit, makes it easier when someone doesn't reply back. I can see that, and it's important to remember that uh, a no isn't necessarily a no; it might just be a not right now. That's right. Which kind of begs the question, you're doing this, are you running that yourself? Do you have people working with you who are involved with that process? I do have one group that helps with reaching out to certain outlets that I've been trying out. But for the most part, they're just force extenders of myself. Doing this by yourself, I'm really curious how you manage these relationships and what you use to track or keep track of all of the information that must go in and out when you're trying to do this.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I probably should make better use of a CRM so because I do make use of a CRM for the different client interactions, but I, I don't actually for all of the personal interactions just because I, I normally have found that I'm pretty good at staying up with all of those. And so it's not a necessity, although you could probably argue mm-hmm. I probably should. So uh, <laughs> that is something I need to probably do and make better use of software.
0: Well, I'm, I'm always interested when, when people are doing a lot by themselves, what software, what tools they use in order to uh, to multiply their skills and to to leverage what they can. So you're, you're using a CRM for your clients, but not necessarily for your personal contacts. What's your CRM for your clients? Yeah, I use Salesforce.
1: I'd used that in a prior life and I thought it was a, it was a good tool. I use a lot of other tools to kind of force extend. So one of which we use a lot of email automation tools I really like Active Campaign because it's a great kind of blend of affordability and gives you all of the, the suite of services and things that are very powerful. Because communicating with everyone on our platform based on their variety of interests is a huge challenge as well to make sure that I, that content is custom tailored and that we're doing the appropriate outreach. And then the other one that I really am happy about was that I am a huge fan of WordPress. I love WordPress and just because in my career, I've done a lot of custom builds and a lot of times it, that's required, but for many things, someone before you has done it and you don't need a full custom build and you can utilize not only a code base that is well you know, tread and well accepted, but also has this enormous community behind it where it's very easy to find developers. It's very easy to find add-ons and plugins that can help amplify your functionality. So I think that's a really big key thing as well. So usually I'm a, I, I do everything I can with every business to try to figure out a way to use WordPress without going custom.
0: So yeah, so building on top of something that's open source and that has a community of people supporting it, I think that that's a great place to start. How did you find the the developers who are working with what you're doing?
1: I've worked with them now for many, many years. So I pretty much, after my, you know, when you, when you work with different people over the course of the years, you realize which ones kind of come with you on every, in every project because you've just got such a great working relationship. You trust them, you know their abilities so well. And that's a very difficult thing to find because now at this point, when I work with my development team, I can shorthand. You know, they know what I'm looking for. I trust their ability in getting what I want because they've worked with me for so long. It's amazing. It's not easy, though. It takes
0: years. Absolutely. But that's exactly the sort of thing that you can leverage. It, it can really accelerate the creation of a new company when you have that kind of a network of resources available to you.
1: Very much. Yeah, I would say that's a big advantage. You know, you've been doing this for a long enough time. You have a lot of people you can tap into for that, where if someone was going to do this, let's say from scratch and build something, I would say, okay, well, In my humble advice, you pick a a big open source platform like that, like a WordPress, because there's such a large pool where even if you make uh, a wrong decision with the developer the first time, or even if you do it a second time, there are so many you can recruit and uh, solicit their help with to come in. And... There's not this big learning curve with learning a bunch of custom code. And then, you know, you could go to places like Upwork and see their reviews and really build a relationship. And so there's so many more platforms now that allow you to vet developers and technical support well before you even have to engage.
0: It's true. And it's very easy to have a workforce that takes advantage of the gig economy that we have these days, where you can bring in the people that you need, and then they can continue learning from what they're doing with you and then go off and do something else. And you don't have to commit to them full time. I'm curious, in the business that you've built right now, do you have a large number of people who are working with you full time? Or is it mostly independent people? So now it's a mix of both. So
1: when we began, it was more of a mix of independent contractors, just because as you're building things out and you're proving things, you know, your biggest expense normally is your personnel. And as we've continued to grow, now we're adding more personnel and we're taking either we're hiring new people or the independent contractors we initially worked with, bringing them on at a full-time capacity. And so that process has been happening. But at the same time, I really have tried to keep the team small as possible. We're under 10. And then, of course, a large ring of the contractors that we do work with, because the reality is we don't always, you know, you want talented people, but you don't want to just have to hire someone and try to keep them busy. And so the having an independent contractor, for example, hacking our active campaign,
0: it makes more sense to have that person as a contractor. That's true. And then you can bring in those specialized skills when you need them, but they may not be skills that you're going to need every single day precisely
1: right that's a good example and yet and they of course can charge more for their services because of that is what they would make on a full-time basis and spread themselves across an, you know a number of clients who need their services so yeah that absolutely
0: and that's one of the ways that they keep themselves worth that extra charge because they're constantly working in their specialization staying on top of the changes and then bringing that skill set back to you 100%
1: yeah i mean there would be no it would be foolish for me to try to duplicate that knowledge or do it myself when Again, on a contract basis for the hours that they need to put in, it's downright reasonable.
0: See, It's very mature the way you're talking about this because a lot of people who are founding companies have a hard time letting go and delegating those responsibilities out to people who may be better at doing these things or may not even be better, but they simply can take the load off so that the founder can do something else.
1: It's true. And you probably give me too much credit. I still have that problem. (laughs) It's not easy to let go of things, but knowing myself, I I do try to do that as much as possible because yeah, it's, it's impossible. And I mean, there's one thing about starting a company is that it's so limitless in all the places that you can dedicate your time and all the things that you can chase in terms of opportunity. And so because of that, you personally have to isolate what you're doing all the time and really think about what's the most appropriate thing you need to be doing at that moment. And of course, part of that realization then comes that I cannot be doing all of the most important things. You have to absolutely pass those on to other people or it's never going to get done.
0: So it doesn't sound like this was the first company that you founded. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I've, I've learned the hard way.
0: Okay. So this isn't your first role as a CEO. You've put together a number of companies in the past and it sounds like you've taken those learnings and applied them here as well. Yeah, very much. And then and th- and
1: this was another big lesson to your, to your question earlier was definitely with delegation and empowering people. To be in charge of sorry, and letting go that's a big part you know it's it's you know i know it's bad when i'm getting too involved in a design decision so for example in our just to give one story it's called gamification is one thing within education where as students are beginning to take courses there are well, just as the word implies, there's a, a game aspect where you can earn points or you're earning badges. And so we're, we're implementing some of this. And one of the, the designers was showing me a, um, some schematics of the design of the badges. And I started sitting there and thinking, no, nah, it should be this. And then I, I had the epiphany in that moment where I thought, what am I doing? Just tr- whatever you think. Get I, I got to move on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know,
1: I mean, Getting into the weeds of the design of the badge, not what I should be focusing on.
0: But it can be very hard to let go of those details, especially when it's something you're building. It, it supports you. It supports what your wife wants. It's like a very personal thing. It ties back to your family and your family's background in education. It can be very difficult to let go of those details, I think. It does. And you want to know why is because when t- to that point,
1: when someone criticizes what you're doing or not even criticizes, but just doesn't like what you're doing, because there's you're always going to get that when you reach so many people, a certain portion of people are going to be critical or dismissive. You do take it personally because it's this is this is the culmination of years of your work and ultimately is a reflection of many of the decisions you made. So because of that, it does create this tendency where to make it really good, you get more involved because you want to avoid that. But you just have to let that go and realize that, you know, the old ads, you can't please all the people all the time.
0: I, I hear you. But I think the, the message in there is, though, don't stop taking it personally because that's what you care about. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true.
1: See, these, they're very, yeah, very difficult, all these.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, nobody said it was going to be easy. You could have just gone out and there and gotten a nine to five job, which also isn't easy, but it's a different kind of not easy. That's very true. So right now you've got this situation where you're, you've founded this company. It's out there. You're starting to get some attention from the media. How are you managing your own stress and your own comfort levels? How are you keeping track of your own time? That's a great question. So
1: one of the key things, I went through a period of introspection prior to starting this company that I kind of alluded to alluded to earlier in that kind of gave me the vision of doing something grand. But there was also another realization I had, which was that I want to spend as much time with my family as possible. And I felt that in my prior experience that I was the way, just for many reasons, that I was dedicating far too much time to work and not enough time to the things that you could argue matter the most. I want that balance where I get to spend that time and do things that I care about. So for me personally, I, when I look at my tasks and what I'm doing every day, when I'm looking at all the things that are piling up and all things to do, I really ask myself, what do I have to do right now so I can get back to spending time with my family? And if you look at it through that lens, and I'm sure people have other lenses that they can look apply that to, it really does help you I guess the word would prioritize your time effectively to make sure you're only doing what's absolutely necessary and important. Because again, the tendency is, is that it's a black hole. You can throw in as much time as possible because the thought being, I just have to work harder and spend more hours and that will make it successful. But that's rarely the case.
0: And as a person in a leadership role, you've also got the people who are working for you and your network of people who've worked with you watching you for cues about how to manage their own time.
1: Very much. And even though it's in a virtual organization, we keep up to date in many other ways, especially based on projects and how things are going. And so if they see that that time's not being spent effectively and things are disorganized, oh yeah, it reverberates to the whole organization.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Now, you mentioned that this is a virtual organization. That also, I'd love to find out more about how you organize and keep track of everybody and make sure that there's transparency and collaboration and coordination in in such a situation.
1: Well, this is actually, it's funny you bring this up. This is actually something that I want to improve dramatically because we have a lot of people and systems right now that are disconnected that I want to start connecting. And so I'm, I'm right now looking for more software to help and do that because you know, people use Slack, which I, I've used before and it is nice. But you know, every software, it's it, at least what I've found, is that there's a trade-off between simplicity and of course adoption, which is what you want, and then the features that can sometimes solve that are very either business-specific or role-specific that could also make it better. And you have to give that, and there's always that trade-off, at least in my mind. So I want everybody communicating, but the tough thing is that everybody's got such a niche role, whether you're our student advisors or whether it's our dev team, that I'm really trying to find a good one right now to kind of bring all of us together. That's not been easy.
0: What are you doing currently?
1: Currently, I'm actually more of the go-between, which I don't like, going against what I've preached. You know, I'm the one who's really the communication and, and we're using a lot of email and email threads for that, but it isn't effective. It's not as effective. And so I really do think that we do need to bring in a software like a Slack to keep everyone on the same page.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see that. Then there are a number of tools out there for collaboration. I know the the, the Google Suite is very convenient for a lot of shared documents and things like that. But different companies choose different approaches, and it all it all depends on the unique challenges you're you're trying to solve. In in terms of the distributed nature of your company, is everybody at least in similar time zones?
1: No, it's another problem as well. So we've got people literally on both coasts. <laughs> so east on the east coast and on the west coast. So no, we don't have, we've have got that added challenge as well. You know, the other problem is too is to, so actually it's a good point that you brought up. So we do use Google docs uh, a lot because it really is very convenient for collaboration. But I guess that what bothers me is there's no overarching theme yet that we've put together for that collaboration, because, you know, something that kind of keeps everything together. And then the Google Doc collaboration just being one component of that. So that is a little frustrating for me. And so I've been trying to dedicate more time to figure out what that solution is going to be.
0: It sounds like an area where you might also need to bring in somebody who has the experience of helping companies set themselves up like this and maybe delegate that to somebody.
1: You're right. It's kind of back to the earlier point, right? I got I to gotta, I gotta
0: follow more of what I'm preaching. <laughs> And that's okay. This is a therapy session slash podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> getting back to the product itself. So th- this is solving a problem for people who want to get back into their education, want to go get their degrees. Also, I think probably a lot of people are, were, would be interested in this who aren't interested in getting degrees, but just want to continue learning. It's true. And, and we do get people who actually come on the platform and are able
1: to utilize us just for, you know, as lifelong learning and for self-betterment. Although I would argue that I'm a big fan of solutions that are very organized for people and, and provide a very, a very purposeful in their, in their implementation. So for example, someone could go on and learn anything they want on YouTube. How amazing that we live in this period of time where I can go on YouTube, there's a lot of other course websites I can go to where literally I could teach myself how to do anything and it's all at our fingertips how incredible but i realized that there isn't what uh, a solution that does what we do which is now packaging this and working through all of the intricacies and the difficulties of getting college credit for that and then the support that people often need in above and beyond just earning credit to find the right school get other uh, access other discounts navigate that process right a lot of complexity so as much as someone would say they could come to our platform for lifelong learning or for self-betterment say, please, yeah, please do. It's all there for you. I would say that, you know, that's not really what we're for. We're open to do that, but I would be honest with myself that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of other platforms you could utilize for that.
0: I really like that because there's a temptation to try to make your, your solution the one-size-fits-all solution for everybody. But focusing in on the specific community you're trying to target, I, I'm sure that that appeals more to the folks who are going to be advertising with your platform. And it also makes something more custom that people who are looking to achieve a specific goal, they can see this as the place where they don't do that.
1: Right, exactly. And so you know, the risk of course is that, you know Silicon Valley investors or not would argue is that, well, you don't wanna of course go too narrow because then if you create something that's so purpose-built, the market's so small, But what's great about this problem and this mission is that we are solving an immense problem that affects millions and millions of people just in the U.S. alone. And so to create a very specific custom-tailored experience that is specific to their needs and at the same time being a very large audience is a really cool thing.
0: Absolutely. I I was looking at the offerings that you have on the site. And I think there are some about 15 classes right now that you're offering. And I'm curious how you went about choosing those classes. And I'm sure your advisory committee had a lot to do with that.
1: Yep. Very, very true. And so there's 15 currently, and we've got a whole host of other ones now that are in the works. And my thought initially was, well, the courses need to be introductory because we have to assume that someone is taking that first step either towards a new degree or towards their first degree. And you can't be too presumptuous that someone has prior experience. So all the courses are introductory and they're all undergrad. And I wanted to make sure that they were interesting. So again, kind of catering to those known impediments, you could argue that, let's say algebra is one of the courses that's commonly in the general coursework that someone must complete for any degree that they're gonna get at a university, right? I have to take algebra, I have to take a whole host of other courses, part of your gen ed requirements but i knew that no working adults going to be super excited to come back and take an algebra course i mean some of us are some of us genuinely like math and that's great but that's not going to be the one that brings you out of you know your 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 current habits and gets you to take courses it's just not so instead i wanted to focus on things that were very interesting and that would pique people's curiosity so we have an introduction to robotics course right because people know that this wave is coming much faster than people anticipate, and it's going to be just as large, if not larger, than the internet revolution that we had. We have an introduction to programming course with Python, and we've got an introduction to accounting, uh, marketing, interesting stuff that people can visualize that are generally interested in and can see applying to whatever career they're going to be in.
0: And that's, again, seeing those titles of those courses, it's one of the reasons why I thought that it might also appeal to a lot of people who wouldn't be looking to get a degree, but just would be interested in learning these things as, as general knowledge, wanting to have a better understanding about the headlines of the day.
1: It's true. You know, I've taken all of our courses, of course, because I was in, you know, as I, I was the, I was student one, if you will. And they're incredibly informative. Like, you know, I, I like, to, you know, I, like you said, I have an economics background and, you know, when I took the accounting course, there was things I didn't know. And I was fascinated by it. I'm like, oh, this is excellent. Yeah, wow, this is so informative, where it honed my ability to you know, read a balance sheet and to discover certain footnotes when analyzing companies. It was really interesting. So yes, very much. And so again, it is, it, it is available for anybody who wants to register and take them. But definitely the experience on the site has been geared to someone to apply it to college.
0: Makes sense. So how are you tracking the effectiveness of this in terms of moving forward toward what the, the mission that you've established for yourself? It's a great question. So when I
1: came out of the gate and we looked at, okay, well, what are we, what are we trying to prove, right? To demonstrate success. And then of course, been able to then uh, raise more money and then go much larger after that. The first thing of course, was the the student adoption. And so funny, interesting story. When we, we did a soft launch in May of 2018, And so we threw up the website and talked about what was going to come before we actually launched, fully launched, people could take courses in July. And we had a thousand people pre-enroll with no marketing whatsoever. And I've, in my career, I had never seen anything like that. In fact, I'm still incredulous to this day that of how everyone had found us, because you look at the reports and it just says, you know, people just typing in it directly. And so it's not like I could really tell where the sources were coming from and it was truly just word of mouth. And it was fascinating to see and a testament to the latent demand of what was out there. So that continued. And that was one, of course, one of the metrics, you know, are people going to find this useful? And is the demand there? And that's definitely been proven. We've got thousands of people registering every month and word of mouth, SEO, and very little social media marketing. So it's been really interesting and neat to see. Well, the other metric that we were looking for was the university adoption, because on one side of the coin, if the universities don't support organizations like us, well then it really could never work, right? Because at the end of the day, they have to be willing to accept our coursework, to work with us, to help our students. And that's been going very well as well. And so we've seen a rapid adoption where now we're up to many universities, great schools. So that part's been going well. And then finally, you know the outcomes of the students themselves was a big one that we're looking for too you know what's the adoption rate how are people progressing you know those kinds of things as well and so all the data looks really good and so now of course to take it from that initial level and you know cross the chasm to go to the the next level to really scale is a big challenge and that's the one I think we're gonna we're facing now
0: it makes sense and uh, I'm gonna be interested to see how it, how you progress over this next step because this is the point at which it's starting to get some buzz to it becomes a real business.
1: Very much. And, you know, now to, even though everything looks very promising across the board, to now take it that next step and to truly now scale and to improve upon these results, it takes far more resources and different resources than what you've been operating with previously. And so now to to change the organization to say, you know, we need so many more student advisors to be helping people and to duplicate that experience when someone comes on, there's a human element of this. It's more challenging. And yet, you know, you don't get that's a, there's, a, there's a marginal benefit to that. How you interact with people changes as you continue to scale it. So yeah, across the board, it's it's, it's going to be very interesting now as we continue on this next year.
0: It sounds like you might need to take a step away from the automation and step back toward more handholding in order to make that more effective. Yeah, ultimately,
1: the human component is one that's very difficult to remove from the equation because ultimately, this is a rather opaque and confusing process for people, which is again, another reason why most people don't take that step. Because if you can't visualize how to get there and there's an uncertainty on the best path, you typically just don't do it. It creates an inertia. So we're trying to break those barriers down. And as part of that, it does really help to have someone there who you can answer some questions. And so all of our student advisors are prior admissions people. So they know an immense amount about the whole process and can give a lot of really good guidance on helping someone. So, you know, of course now it's incumbent upon us to now try to duplicate that from an artificial, like an AI perspective. To, to create that experience from a programmatic perspective. However, I don't know if it can always fully do it to a certain extent, maybe, or some aspects of it. But yeah, ultimately, it's a, it's a personal thing.
0: Well, you're at a really interesting point in the business right now. And I'm sure that my listeners are going to be interested in finding out more about this. Where can I send them to learn more about what's going on with your company?
1: Yeah. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if they ever want to reach out or or connect on LinkedIn, uh, that's a great place. And then also you're just going to the website in general, onlinedegree.com. And you can kind of see more about what the project, how the project's going, what we're doing and uh, keep track of us. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, Grant, I appreciate you being on the show and thank you for sharing all this background. It's really fascinating.
1: Dude, thank you for having me. Excellent questions and really enjoyed actually kind of delving into this. I rarely get the opportunity to talk about a lot of the technical specificities and a lot of the inner workings that we've touched on. Well, that's the fun part. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.